This is Geek Gab for Saturday, April 8th, 2017, with your host, Brian and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Our fellow host, Dornall John, is missing today. He is out playing cards. That's right. He is out in a massive tournament playing cards, and so he will not be able to uh, will not be able to join the show today, which is fine, because we have one of our hosts, Brian Niemeyer, is a Hugo-nominated, Dragon Award-winning writer, and the topic for today is all about writing and plotting and how to build in and develop themes. So, before we get to that, I want to give Brian a chance to say hi. How are you doing today? Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. Uh, I'm doing fantastic. How are you? I, I don't think they can answer back directly. Although, if you want to monitor the chat, I'm sure they will give you some interesting responses. I um, am, in fact. <laughs> um, typically, in the chat, we have several actual uh, published writers. So if they want to chime in on today's show... They can as well. Anything new and exciting? No, wait, I saw the tweet. I saw the tweet. You're on the last three chapters of your super secret project for Castalia House. Indeed, I am. I've, I've made progress since then. So, yeah, looking to get that draft finished up this week and then just immediately going to dive into the second draft. Awesome. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Um, Okay, today's show, speaking of abrupt transitions, today's show uh, is a follow-on to an episode we did, it might have been five or six months ago now, where me and Brian talked about and debated Iron Man versus Iron Man 2. And Brian was defending Iron Man 2 because he was defending the themes that were in the show. And I was thinking a lot about it, as is my want and what I wanted to do was to establish some evidence that I think that Iron Man 2 could have done the exact same things, but drawn them out better, drawn them out more fully, drawn them out more compellingly. So I've been fooling around and have I haven't written a treatment because I don't have I don't have all that much written down and I don't have all that much in order even. But I sat down and worked through a couple of ideas for an alternate version of Iron Man 2 so that uh, I could show Brian exactly what I'm thinking about, why I thought they could have done it better. But before we get to this, let's start with a real quick recap of the official Iron Man 2. Brian, do you want to do that? Okay. So to recap Iron Man 2, we pick up with uh, Tony Stark after the uh, events of the first movie, and he's become just a global worldwide rock star. And he's, uh, as he said, privatized world peace. So there's quite a time jump from the, the first one, which is the origin story. So I, I like that. I like that it's finally a superhero movie that's not an origin story. But I digress. So he's uh, holding, he's revived like a worldwide science expo, kind of in the vein of, like the New York World's Fair that his father had run back in the day. But we find that Tony is keeping a secret and uh, is, as um, you know, as a plot device, uh, device that's often used in, in Marvel, his own powers have become kind of a detriment because the uh, mini arc reactor installed in his chest is giving him heavy metal poisoning. So he is slowly dying. And in fact, uh, the rate at which he's being, being poisoned is increasing, and all of his attempts to cure it uh, have so far come to naught. So into the situation walks a, a figure from Tony's past, or rather his father's past, uh, Ivan Vanko, who's the son of a Russian physicist that Howard Stark, Tony's dad, had worked with, and who's been raised to believe that Howard Stark ripped off all of Ronko Sr.'s inventions. So he sets about plotting revenge against Tony 
he builds his own arc reactor uh, using his father's plans and ambushes Tony at uh, a Formula One car race in Monaco where Tony, who you know, made, made reckless and kind of having a death wish by his condition, has fired Team Stark's racing car driver and replaced him himself. So, you know, hijinks ensue. There's a fight on the track, and Bronco is arrested. So, yeah, there's a picture. Okay. Um, so now... We can, we can skip the rest of the movie, because that's that won't be pertinent to the to what I want to talk about. Okay. But basically, the rest of the movie is a fight between... is uh, a series of maneuvers between Vonko, a third party, and Tony, in order for Vonko to gain revenge on Tony. So... Here's uh, Justin Hammer. I think that, that is important. Um, yeah. Here's the thought. My first thought in rewriting Iron Man 2 is this. The thing that should be killing Tony Stark is the thing that is killing Tony Stark. And I'll explain that in just a second. My second thought is that you shouldn't undercut the character development of the first film. The arc of the first film was irresponsibility to responsibility, maybe not full responsibility, but some responsibility. And to have at the beginning of the movie, Tony be irresponsible again, undercuts the character development of the first film. It makes it look like he's regressing. So if what you want is to have a similar arc of irresponsibility to responsibility. What you need to do is, I'm going to get back to that in just a second. So those are the two, uh, the two ideas I had about rewriting the movie, about how to do those similar themes in a little bit better way without undercutting his character development and without adding an unnecessarily lethal element to it. So real quick, what is killing Tony Stark? What's his entire character based around? The shrapnel working its way into his heart. Exactly. And that's what the movie should have been about. Not being poisoned by palladium, but the shrapnel killing him. That's what the problem should have been. That's what he should be working to solve because that's who Tony Stark is. The palladium introduced brand new just for this movie was a complete distraction. It didn't tie into who the character was. It didn't tie into what the first movie was all about because that shrapnel in his heart is what makes him more humble. It's what makes him develop as a person. It's what makes him better. And if we show in the second movie that that shrapnel is still causing problems and in fact is causing even worse problems that builds on all of the themes and all of the character development from the first movie. So my thesis is that the shrapnel should have been the problem Tony Stark was wrestling with and that um, in order to show him going from irresponsible to responsible and also throw in a bunch of fan service that I think the fans would like, we should go a slightly different way. So here's, let me start reading my, uh, before I do this, let me ask Brian, do you have any, does that seem wise to you or does that seem like I'm off in the, off in left field? Here's the thing there, as Jim Butcher said, there's, there's a good way that you can tell any story, you know, any Plot synopsis can be stupid. Any plot synopsis can be brilliant. Like when he took Pokemon and the Lost Roman Legion and made Codex Alera. Um, but I will say there's one tightrope you need to walk. I think your, your story pitch has legs. But one thing you want to avoid is you, you could easily lapse into another regression there because a big part of at least the first act of Iron Man 1 was Tony solving that same problem so we are now reintroducing the same problem from the beginning of Iron Man 1 instead of a, a new one, which is the palladium poisoning. So you'd want to handle it in a different way is all um, I would caution about. Well, I'll see what you think about how, how uh, or at least the ideas that I've had, okay. the couple of ideas that I have work out. So all right. here's what we do. The movie starts with um, one of those very, very quick montages to bring people back up to speed of the first movie, like what you just did. Um, and that's actually important for 
what happens a few minutes into the movie. Um, and so the last scene we have, which is the end of the first movie, is Tony standing up at the uh, um, standing up at the podium and saying, "I am Iron Man." So, without going to exact scenes, what's happening at the very beginning of the movie is he's out flying around in his Iron Man suit. There's some banter with Pepper Potts and then Jarvis. Um, Pepper asks him how the independent power supply is doing. So let's, and I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to tell this like a story, folks. I'm not going to be able to keep you entirely wrapped up this because I want to show laying pipe or um, what, what do what do book writers call that? Not laying pipe. Um, what what I Chekhov's to... gun? Right. Setting up Chekhov's gun? Okay. Yeah. What you're doing is during the first part of the of the movie or the first part of the book is you're setting up events that will pay off later, even in very, very small ways. So right now you've got Pepper on the radio to Tony. Tony's flying around. Jarvis is with him talking in his helmet. And Pepper says to him, how's the independent power supply coming? So if you remember the second movie, you remember that War Machine was there. War Machine had his own suit. Therefore, he had to have an independent arc reactor power supply. So he set that up right out of the gate that Tony's working on that. And that way, when it comes into play later with War Machine and it comes into play later uh, with his own Iron Man suit, we already have a little bit of, of groundwork laid. We already have Chekhov's gun being set up and we already have, um, we already have the, they call it in movies, laying pipe. That stuff you do in the beginning so that when you get to stuff in the middle and the end, it makes sense. The audience has already been forewarned. So what Tony's doing is he's developing a freestanding suit, a freestanding suit of armor, so that when he's running the Iron Man suit, he's not drawing power directly from his heart, directly from the thing that's keeping him alive. Um, and Pepper Potts reminds him that he's you know, he's not supposed to be gallivanting around. He's supposed to be working on this problem. She's worried because apparently there's some problem with his heart. Um, Tony says, I'm doing a patrol. Pepper responds, a patrol? May I, may I remind you, you're not some costume superhero. Who says? The U.S. government says. S.H.I.E.L.D. says. Oh, S.H.I.E.L.D. You mean the strategic homeland intervention? Yes. Look, don't worry. I'm doing one tiny thing and I'll be right home. They won't even find out. So you... Uh, cut back to Pepper Potts with Black Widow standing behind her I and mean, trying to keep as much of the second movie as possible. And uh, she says, looking very worried and stressed, you can't keep doing this, Tony. And Tony responds to her over the radio, just one quick thing, it's a matter of life and death. You won't want me to leave someone to die, do you? Tony flies hmm. down to a tree, plucks a cat from the tree, and hands it to this little girl. Lands, opens up his... Iron Man suit, flirts with a couple of onlookers, shakes hands. Hi, I'm Tony Stark. I'm Iron Man. Signs some, um, signs some autographs. And while we're in the middle of this, we cut to something else. There's a Stark Labs emplacement somewhere. Uh, a bunch of crooks break in um, and steal stuff. And one of the things they steal is the Ironmonger suit. The big, massive suit that Jebediah Stain wore at the end of Iron Man 1. So they escape with that, with a bunch of data and the Ironmonger suit. Fury and Stark get together. Um, Fury argues with Stark about proliferation, about how dangerous it is for other people to get this suit. If Iron Man is going to be around, he has to be the only one. They can't have... 5,000 suits around and that Tony needs to keep Iron Man locked down. He needs to be the only one. Um, and Fury tells him the world needs you to put your playboy Tony in the past, Mr. Stark. And Stark replies to him, you of all people should know Fury, you can never escape your past. So then we cut to a flashback of two or three years ago before the first movie. So, why would you do that? You cut to a flashback because if you want the arc of Tony being irresponsible to being responsible, 
you start, instead of undermining all of the character development of the first movie, you start with him, um, before I get to that, because it should be kind of obvious, before I get to that, I'm going to stop and let Brian ask any questions he might have. Okay. So one thing that, that I thought of is that in the comics, originally, the electromagnet keeping the Trevor out of Tony's heart wasn't actually embedded in his chest. It was just that um, he wore the chest plate for the armor, you know, under his clothes all the time. So I was wondering if we could work that in somehow, like to avoid the, uh, like that could be what he's working on. Um, to avoid the heavy metal poisoning. Way. Just a random thought that occurred to me. I, I do want to say this. Um, the transition between the past and the present, um, I think it would be interesting visually. While after, after Tony is arguing or while he's arguing with Fury, we see him actually with that white um, tank top where you can see that he has okay. the uh, implant in his chest. And then when you cut to the past, the very mm -hmm. first thing is him being you know, basically topless, and you can see that he doesn't have that in his chest. That's how the audience immediately knows this okay. is before he became Iron Man. This is before that bomb went off. We are now in the past because he doesn't have that thing in his chest. It's easy, it's quick, and it immediately lets people know, hey, this is, we're going back in the past. Yeah, um, and plus we get a little fan service, nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Okay, so... I, uh, I don't know how much of the next part to tell is a story, how much just to lay it out. Um, just lay it out. I want the fight between Vanko and Tony to be personal. I don't want it to be because of what may have happened between their dads 20 years ago. I want Vanko to have a grudge against Tony, a very personal grudge. And I also want to set it up so that we see some of the reasons for things that happened in Iron Man 1. Um, and it ties into Vanko's motivations. And here's how we do it. Tony um, gets out of bed. It's very, very late in the day. A woman calls him. She's basically Princess Margaret of Monaco, whatever fictionalized version of that. She's really, really upset because Tony was supposed to go with her to her cousin's wedding. So it's a royalty of Europe getting married. They don't say the country. We can probably toss in one of, you know, the fictional Marvel countries that will come into play later. But they're getting married. <laughs> Let's say that again. I don't think they could. Uh, I was going to say Latvia, but I don't think they can use it. I think Fox owns that. But anyway. Yeah. So she's mad because Tony didn't show up. They have a fight, and it's quite clear that Tony and her have broken up. They're over. So Tony goes down to his workshop, and he's tinkering around. He's got a drink there. He's drinking it. And... Uh, Jarvis reminds him that he had something to do today, and he's like, what did I have to do? And Jarvis says, oh, well, we had a, we have an arms show that you're supposed to go and represent Stark. And Tony is looking through the brochure, and he's about to blow off Jarvis. He tells Jarvis he's not really interested until he sees a picture of this absolutely gorgeous um, blonde. Um, you know, six foot, whatever, stunning physique, absolutely beautiful. She's a model, and she's working for one of the countries at this show. And he asks Jarvis, he holds up the brochure and says, you know, is she going to be there? And Jarvis says, yes. And so Tony decides on a whim to clamber in his jet and jet off to Europe to go to this arms show. At this arms show, he does his thing as Stark, some people are jealous, some people are impressed, whatever. And he goes specifically to the booth of this particular arms merchant, arms manufacturer. What these people do, and the people who are in charge of the company, the people who own the company, the people who run this are Vanko and his brother and the blonde model who turns out to be a relative of theirs. Um, they're making and manufacturing small arms. Uh, assault rifles, pistols, things like that. And they've come up with some innovations that nobody else in the world has. Tony tells them, hey, you know, I don't have a... Stark Industries doesn't make small arms. We don't make guns. We make bombs. We make 
you know, big things, expensive things. But, uh, and he's talking with them about buying a bunch of stuff to sell under the Stark name and things like that. And he eventually goes to ask the blonde model out and uh, Venko kind of cock blocks him. Hmm. So what Tony does is he buys their company. <laughs> he pulls out $20 million, gives $10 million to Vanko, $10 million to Vanko's brother, and buys everything. All their intellectual property, all the weapons they have on hand. I mean, he asks some questions like, well, can you, can you maintain that quality at scale and manufacturing? What if we did this? What if we did that? And so on his private jet that he flew to this arms deal with, he has them load up all of this he has them load up the brother Vanko, the model, and then has them load everything else up in a cargo plane to take back to the United States. And then while he's on the jet, he starts romancing this blonde supermodel. Um, and I think you would be hard pressed to find a better example of Tony being irresponsible than spending $20 million just to get a date with someone. <laughs> Agreed, and it, it's very in character. It reinforces his his personality quite a bit. Um, okay, so any any questions so far? No, I'm following this. Okay, so Tony flies back to America, and he lands, and he goes into Stark Industries, and who should be there but Obadiah Stane? <laughs> because we're in the past, and we can bring back Jeff Bridges, and people can see, you know, there's that frisson, there's that uh, what do they call that? where the audience knows something that the characters don't. Um, there's a specific term for it that I can't remember at the moment. But but there's a recognition there. Uh, the audience knows Stain's going to go bad. They just don't know what's going to happen. So Tony's talking to Stain, and Stain is, is mad. He's like, why did you buy a small arms company? We don't sell small arms. Look, Tony, no NATO country is going to buy weapons that shoot 7.62. You know, <laughs> they're all standardized around the NATO 5.0, you know, Five millimeter round, right. five point six millimeter round. We can't sell these to anybody in the West. It, it's useless unless we go through and completely redesign all the weapons around a new round. And and Tony just does not care, does not give a crap. He right. stay on the back and he says this thing. Look, Obadiah, Obi, because that's what he calls him, right? Obi, I believe in you. You can take care of it. You can handle it. Let's go. And he takes off to go hang out with the blonde model. So Obadiah Stane is upset, and he goes off, and this is a subplot running through the rest of the first part of the movie that uh, I'm, I'm going to do all of it right now so you can see it as the audience, but just imagine every time we are doing different scenes from now on in that this little subplot continues to play out. What Obadiah Stane does is he has to find a market for these guns, and eventually the only market he can find is the black market. He sells some hmm. of them regularly and he contracts with like Hungary and other countries. And even you can mention, you know, fictional, um, fictional uh, Marvel countries like Wakanda or Latveria or whatever. He gets some contracts mm -hmm. there. But basically, in order to make this um, small arms division that they suddenly have profitable at all, they start selling to criminals. They start selling to terrorists. They start, uh, dramatic irony, yes, that's exactly the term I was looking for. They start selling to the Ten Rings. And this is the first time Obadiah Stane has contact with the two men that we see him conspiring with in the first movie. The reason why he first gets in contact with these people is a desperate attempt to make this new division profitable. And so without saying it outright, we kind of hint to the audience that this relationship he establishes is what leads to the events of the first movie. So, dramatic irony, uh, fan service bringing back characters that they liked in the first movie, even if just for a little bit, and then explaining how the events of the first movie got set into motion without dwelling on them or being too heavy into continuity or, or whatever. So... Does that all make sense so far? Does that plot hang together? So far, I don't, I don't really see too many problems. The one caution I have is flashbacks are tricky. You really want to be careful with flashbacks. You really want to have 
some subtle way to not make the transitions jarring. But no, otherwise it sounds like you've got the characters' personalities and motivations down. I'm not seeing any, any contradictions, so I can continue. Um, what eventually ends up happening is, uh, and, and the next bits are going to be choppy because these are out-of-order notes I have. Essentially what happens is Tony says to, um, he welcomes the employees of this new small arms division to Stark Industries. Um, tells them, you'll be faithful to us, we'll be faithful to you. That is a core value here at Stark Industries. The brothers are making very, very low cost, very, very rugged, very, very effective weapons. Um, very, very effective guns. Um, but when they show up in the hands of the Ten Rings, they're used, um, and the brothers find out about that their guns, Stark guns, are being used. They get angry about it, and they go try to complain to Tony. Stain kind of leads them off. They're really upset at this. At the same time, Tony's been dating this girl for about, you know, several weeks, which is, for Tony, that's a deep, deep commitment. And one day, he cuts it off. You know, the girl's escorted out of the house. Her clothes are taken out. He's, it's not that he's deliberately cruel to her, but we see her being kind of hurt. She goes to fly back to their home country of Russia, tells the brothers that they can't trust Tony Stark, that she thinks he's irresponsible, that he will change on a dime, whatever. Um, so this is where the flashback ends, where we transition back into um, what's going on in the modern, in the present. Tony, um, the, the brother of Venko, is upset because he gets denied bonuses all of these weapons that Stain is selling under the table have to be sown, sold illegally. They can't be on the books as a profit center. So they're making these weapons, and the weapons are disappearing because of accounting tricks, and the brothers are not receiving the bonuses that they were promised. This deal isn't as good as they thought it would. And they go to complain. Stain tells them, oh, no, don't worry about it. It's a temporary thing. Um, this is how it works. You, you will definitely see this profit in a while. And the brother finds out that they're being screwed, that these weapons are not, you know, having problems. There's no problems with production. All the things he, Stain is kind of hinting to him that it's his fault, kind of hinting to him that all the promises he made to Tony weren't actually true. They can't maintain this at the volume he promised. The brother's upset. He finds out these weapons really exist. Um that they're being used, in fact, by the Ten Rings against people in their home country. Um, some of the situations that Tony deals with in the first movie, because we're still in the flashback, he finds out that their guns, watching this footage of Tony engaging in Gomera and engaging in other places, he finds out that their guns are being used against people that they know, against villages that they've had contact with. And it sends him into a heavy drinking spiral, and because of his drinking, he ends up getting in a car wreck and getting killed. Hmm. Venko now has his motivation. It's personal. Tony Stark, through his irresponsibility, through his distance from the company, and even though Tony's off doing good things now, he's, he's being responsible. He's taking responsibility for the company, Tony is still not paying attention to what's going on around the company. Stain's being able to run things exactly how he wanted, and Stain's doing bad things. Vanko blames Stain. And then Tony comes back and says, we're not selling weapons anymore, and the entire company shuts down. <laughs> right. The entire company shuts down, and all of a sudden, Vanko has none of what he expected, nothing. He says, what about the money? What about the money you owe me? What about the money? Tony Stark promised me. And Stain tells him, you know, hey, we, I can't do anything about it. It's Tony. He he owns the company. He's he's running it. I can't do anything about it. I'm sorry. You'll you'll just have to wait. So that's when Vanko goes off and begins plotting his revenge against Tony Stark. It's very very personal for him, uh, for several reasons. 
again, I, I want to pause real quick and say, does that all make sense? That'll hang together. It does make sense. Uh, I think it's as powerful, if not more. It, it's more layered than the simpler motivation from the, the actual movie. And it, uh, each step logically follows from the last. The one thing I would say is that's a long flashback with a lot of moving parts. What I'd recommend is instead of getting that all out of the way in one chunk at the beginning, instead of front loading it, to scatter it like breadcrumbs throughout the film's running time. Because if you look at what they did with Iron Man 3 and the, the flashback there, it really didn't leave the hotel. It really was in all one setting. And that helps the audience to realize, like, okay, this, like, we're not doing a time jump. Because it's it's easy to confuse cuts to different scenes with, with time jumps. So I would try to break it up so that we have, um, like, each each sequence of your flashback is contained within, uh, like, we cut them up into smaller sequences with one flashback per setting. So like we're going from, you know, the, the, the trade show to the negotiations with, with Stain, like the, those would be broken up. And then to Tony kicking the, the girl out and her telling her brothers, you can't trust Tony Stark. That would be another one. And then this sequence you just talked about where Stain's like, well, that, that's it. We're not making weapons anymore. And Vanko swears revenge. We should probably separate those or if you really want to keep them together, just find some way to make absolutely like make the audience certain that yes, this this is all in the same timeline. It is not in the, the present. That's the only thing I'd be concerned with. One way to do that, and I'm not I, I'm not a screenwriter, and I, I can't make this as a movie, which is why I'm I'm, you know, instead of actually threading in subplots through, I'm just laying out the main line. Um one way to do that is to make the beginning of the movie be about Vanko. Um, yeah. To where once the company is bought and they're on the plane back, Vanko becomes the point of view character. We see everything through his eyes. We experience everything through his eyes, and we only see the effects. We only see Tony Stark when he intersects with Vanko, and we uh, see all the effects on Vanko's life because of what Tony does. And it kind of puts the audience in his shoes. And so we follow through that timeline up until he decides to go rogue and to do things on his own. Uh, by sticking with him as the point of view character, you can make that timeline coherent and make sense because the audience is following uh, a side story to the first movie and it makes it all make sense. Um, okay, that's a solid idea, yeah. So, in the rest of the movie, that's what I've spent all my, you know, or most of my thinking time about is this setup. Mm -hmm. So Vanko gets, goes off, leaves. And now we're back with Tony. We're back in the main timeline. He's working on a suit that has independent power. And what we find out is that in point of fact, his, um, his reactor isn't working as well, that the shrapnel is getting worse. He's actually come up with three different innovations on the reactor. He keeps on rebuilding the reactor, and it keeps him alive for a few months longer, a few weeks longer, but then stops working. And he's concerned. We see Tony with health problems. We see Tony, you know, having uh, moments of weakness, whatever. He's clearly, his health is being dramatically impacted by this. Um, so... The movie at this point diverges. Tony needs to find a way to save himself. So that's what he becomes hyper-focused on. He takes his technology, he takes Jarvis, he takes Dummy the robot, and he goes off and lets everything else go. He gives um, Pepper Potts the uh, power of attorney for him and makes her acting CEO and then leaves and just drops off the grid. People don't know where he is. People don't know where he's going. And what he eventually does, and I'm just going to lay this out because, again, this would be interspersed with other scenes, but mm -hmm. we will, I'm going to lay it all out right now so we can get it out of the way. He eventually has to 
but he eventually finds out that his dad had an advanced design for the arc reactor for the massive arc reactor. If you remember in the first movie, his dad first built the arc reactor, but it was very, very, um, it was very, very uh, inefficient. It wouldn't work as a power source. So he finds out his dad had plans for an advanced arc reactor. So he has to save himself and he wants to miniaturize this giant arc reactor. This is the same giant advanced arc reactor that will later end up in the Avengers tower which is an event that happened later in the official Marvel Universe. Avengers Tower mm -hmm. in the first Avengers movie had this massive arc reactor. It's this one that his dad first developed. And he wants to miniaturize this in order to uh, not just halt the shrapnel in his heart, but actually pull all the shrapnel out of his heart. So Iron Man is gone. He's off the board. And what happens is there is a series of attacks on Stark Industries that are escalating. Fury is angry about it because it's obvious that these, these men are using Stark weaponry and Stark technology. And so in order to halt these attacks, they bring in War Machine. They take this one suit with its own independent power supply and War Machine begins patrolling, who is Brody, um, trying to defend Stark against these people who apparently have absolutely thorough inside information about Stark. It's the emotionally stable Colonel James Rhodes. Yes. I, I like it, especially since earlier, Fury said, we can only have one. And that clears the way for this nicely. So I like it. Um, and what eventually happens is Vanko uses... Instead of being in half naked with the two whips, he improves on, upgrades, and, and manages to make it even better, even tougher, the um, Ironmonger suit that Stain was using. Uh, Black Widow goes out and finds Tony after he's finished fixing the problem with his heart. Um, and one of the scenes of Tony working on his heart is he starts hallucinating. Because he's really in a bad way. And what he hallucinates is Jensen. His assistant, the bald man from the first movie, who ends up getting shot. Tony hallucinates entire conversations with this guy. And these conversations are helping him work towards the solution. And whenever he gets weak, whenever he starts fainting, Jensen is there to tell him, hey, get up. You know, you can do this. You can take care of this. And of course, we know that that's actually hallucination, but Tony's grip on reality is getting kind of weak. Jarvis is there trying to get Tony to, you know, reconnect with reality, telling him you need to stop this, you're being obsessive, you need to go out and, and get help from other people. This is the first time we see Jarvis developing as more than snark, developing kind of a personality. And so that lets uh, that sets up uh, some of Jarvis's development that will culminate in the vision. Uh, in the second Avengers movie. Um, and then Jarvis is the one who decides to throw up a flare. When Tony goes out to get some medical supplies, Jarvis, uh, he reconnects to the internet through Wi-Fi. Um, Jarvis yells for help. Uh, Black Widow gets it, who's been going through, trying to find out who these guys are and trying to find Tony, trying to look through all of these ancient, old, uh, abandoned Stark properties to find out which one Tony is in. They come in, they get Tony. It turns out that um, that he's he actually has solved his problem. His new miniaturized arc reactor is saving him, and they... Um, he just needs to go to the hospital to kind of sleep off all of this wear and tear on his body to rest. So he's in the hospital resting when War Machine fights Ironmonger and gets destroyed because Ironmonger genuinely has a superior suit. But Tony now has a superior suit. So even though he's sick, he gets out, he suits up his Iron Man, he goes out, he fights Venko. And that's the climactic scene of the movie. Okay. And I realize the second half is very, very sketchy. It's because I'm not really making this as a treatment. I'm not really making this as a script. And the second half is basically the playing out of all the elements made in the, in the first half. 
I got you. Catching some people up here. <laughs> yeah, well, well done. Uh, there's very good pacing and a, a consistent flow. You know, you're you're avoiding the and then this happens problem. Everything is. And all the beats between scenes can be described as therefore or but. So that's always key. And I, I do like the, the kind of nod to uh, the, the Donner Superman with rescuing the cat from the tree at the beginning. That, that was priceless. <laughs> uh, also, one thing I was kind of worried about that you, you did allay was, you know, okay, well, if it's the shrapnel still killing Tony. And how do we get around the, the idea that uh, we're not backsliding to the first movie and you know you pointing out that, well, we're going to kind of write kind of and say it was, it was only ever a temporary fix. Like the, the very first chest piece was only ever temporary. But then even the second better one he comes up with in the, the first movie, like after a while, it runs down the electromagnet gets powered down. In fact, I think um, I, I had an idea for what I think would be a cool action sequence. He has been getting sick, but you know, due to his bravado, he kind of just brushes off. He's like, I'm fine. You know, I just need to sit down for a minute. But then he is, like, let's say, flying over like a busy Los Angeles highway or something and has a heart attack in the armor and almost causes an eight-car pileup or something. Or he's even, yeah. you know, chasing someone who is, you know, illicitly using Stark weapons. Like, he's in the middle of, of battle and has a heart attack. Something has to break through to Tony to make him decide finally, okay, this is it. I can't put this off anymore. I have to grab everything and go and take care of this problem right now. So you're right. Some kind of, some kind of inciting event for him to take off um, has to happen. Okay, well, it sounds like we're, we're agreeing on that. Uh, so, like, he has a heart attack while flying over busy traffic in, in the middle of combat. Uh, Jarvis uses the defibrillators built into the suit to bring him back, and he realizes, okay, yeah, that was bad. Well, I gotta can, solve this. He can even be um, involved in stopping these thieves. He doesn't realize yet how big a problem this is, or that... Um, they're all tied together. It's the second, uh, or even the first, um, the first assault on Stark Labs. He goes there to stop it. And the reason why they're successful, the reason why they're able to get the data, the reason why they're able to get the Ironmonger suit is because Tony collapses in the middle of the battle. He literally can't stop them, and that's how they get away. Mm -hmm. And that like sets up the rest of the movie. It does. It does so nicely. Well done. So that's my thoughts on Iron Man 2, is uh, a way to take all of the... Obviously, I discarded a lot of the elements that were in the first or the, first, the original Iron Man 2. Um, but I think that preserves a lot... It gives Vanko a stronger motivation, a more personal motivation. It doesn't undercut Tony's character development from the first movie. And um, it, it, it doesn't introduce an extraneous death threat to Tony. It keeps Tony um, going. Uh, or what is killing him is the thing that is killing him. Yeah, I also, <laughs> well well put. I also noticed that you, uh, you trimmed Justin Hammer. Yeah, he... <laughs> There really wasn't any role for him in this in this plot. Um, well, no, you you stain you replaced him with stain, so that yeah, that's fine. My my main contention again, just to remind people of why Iron Man Two is the best movie in the series, is to have a proper foil for Iron Man. You really need either one villain who is a match for him, both in the boardroom and on the battlefield, or two villains a corporate villain for Tony Stark to face who threatens his business and an armored or superpowered villain to give the Iron Man armor a run for its money. And Iron Man 2 did that better than the first one where Stain is a great business world nemesis. 
but I don't know. He kind of fell flat for me. He's Ironmonger. It felt kind of rushed. But I like that you're bringing Stain back because he, he he's great in that role. And I think that you have him doing exactly what he would do. It's like, well, we've got a bunch of ammunition I can't sell, or a bunch of guns I can't sell to NATO because of the ammunition. Well, okay, I'll sell it to uh, terrorists of the black market. <laughs> that 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 is the moral calculus he would uh, he would use. So, yeah, so we've got stain instead of hammer in flashback, but I think that works. And then uh, I mean, we we still got Vonko with a more personal motivation, but also with a monetary motivation. So, yeah. That works. I'd watch that. All right. Well, um, do we have any any questions uh, from the audience we want to address before we take off? Looks like they're talking about Lupin the Third and Persona, so... <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, anybody got anything? Um, and, and really, what I want you to get out of this show, folks, for those of you who are critics or for those of you who are writers... Uh, or those of you who want to be writers, is not um, the exact plot and characterization of this alternate Iron Man 2. That's, that's kind of secondary. What, what's important for writers is to learn and know how to plot, how to build character motivations, how to build character actions that fit with their motivations, um, how to respect... If you make a sequel, a sequel book... Uh, or whatever, how to respect the character development that happened in the first one so that your audience doesn't feel cheated. Um, and so I, I think this has been, more than anything else, it's not really a discussion of Iron Man 2. It's sort of a live exercise in uh, plotting and characterization and in the kind of issues that you have to keep in mind when you're building a sequel. And even a lot of it, it, it you know, it could help you when you're building your first book. And so... If you want to talk about or discuss the specific plot points we put, I put together with, and then the stuff we did with Brian for Iron Man 2, that's fine. But kind of look at it on a deeper level to say, okay, so that's how I should approach, you know, writing uh, my character is figure out what things they would do instead of telling people that Tony was irresponsible, instead of telling people, you know, having Pepper Potts yelling at him, you are so irresponsible, and, and now you're not, and I love you more for it. Instead of putting in a scene like that, just show Tony doing things that play into his mystique as a character, that play into his uh, charm as a character, but which we as the audience still can see that they're irresponsible and then have consequences for those actions. And I think is specifically this movie, what I tried to do was build it up so that everything that happened at the end, the battle between Tony and Ironmonger, Rhodey getting hurt, the war machine armor existing at all, all of that were consequences of decisions Tony made in the first part of the movie. So, um, that's the only reason why we would do this episode is not to continue arguing about Iron Man 2, not for me to, you know, harass you with my fan fiction about Iron Man. It's so that you can see, hopefully we can illustrate how writing, how plotting works, how putting together character motivations, how you do um, what they call, you know, setting up using Chekhov's gun or um, laying pipe in the movie business how all of that is put together so you think through things that you want to have happen later in the latter half and you put the reasons why they happen in the first half. So if that helped you at all clarify that or helped you think about it in a new way or see how to do it better, then by all means, this is a worthwhile episode. Yeah, I think we can boil it down to when plotting, one, make sure that you foreshadow later plot devices and especially plot twists by laying pipe, by setting up Chekhov's guns over the mantle, and then make sure for your pacing and the, the connective tissue between scenes, ask yourself, is the only way that I can describe the transition between two beats and then? And if so, you need to rewrite until it can be described as either therefore or but, because everything should follow as a logical consequence or obstruction to what came before. And that's where conflict comes from. And conflict um, drives your plot. Go ahead. No, I, I was gonna. Um, we're we're 
way over time. I was going to give you a chance to say any final things. I mean, all of that advice, by the way, everything Brian just said, you should, you should learn that. Uh, and it, specifically, it comes from uh, the creators of South Park, uh, mm -hmm. Matt Parker, Trey Stone. Um, and if there was a presentation they did, I believe, at New York University, if you can find that online, where they talk about therefore or but and not and then. A lot of problems that happen in modern movies are because a series of events happen that they've depicted on film, but there's no reason. They're just a series of random events. There's no connective tissue. Um, okay, so we had a question here. But if a plot connects from act to act, how can force surprise reveal be worked in? Well, you don't want to force a surprise reveal. You want to have a surprise reveal that comes about naturally, inherently, organically from uh, early material. And that's where the but comes in. Um, you know, Tony fixes himself, but it's too late. He collapses, and so Jarvis has, has to save him. That's a but. Um, and, and you can draw other ones out of this. Um, I don't know. Right. right. What I was going to say is, and that, that's true, is we're talking about making sure that the scenes connect from act to act causally, not necessarily chronologically. And that's how you can fit in surprises. Like we've just been talking about uh, making the first act of the movie basically a flashback. And as long as you set that up correctly. And, and oh, most okay. importantly, it's not just a flashback. Um, it's a flashback from Vanko's point of view so we can set up him as a character and illustrate Tony's irresponsibility by observing the impact that has on other people's lives. Because um, that's a different direction to take Tony's responsibility than we saw in the first movie. It makes that material fresh again instead of just re, you know, uh, redoing all of the, oh, well, he's sleeping with the newspaper lady and he's going to the casino and, and all of this. Instead of rehashing all of that, you, you take it in a new direction. You take it uh, from a new point of view so that uh, um, you, you understand Vanko better and you see the effects Tony has on other people. Uh, mm -hmm. All right. Uh, any, any last thoughts, Brian? Yes, just wanted to mention that this month, my Soul Cycle series, my, as, you, as you said, um, Camel nominated and Dragon Award winning Soul Cycle. Uh, the second two books are on sale, making the entire thing, all three books, you can buy them all for less than the price of John Scalzi's latest ebook. So head on over to Amazon to buy the, the links below and check those out. Uh, also, the Puppy of the Month book blog um, is doing Soul Dancer this month. So, you know, by all means, do a search for Puppy of the Month book blog. We, I'll drop a link into the description below. Um, and then uh, check that out. They'll be discussing Brian's novel, Soul Dancer. Yep, the actual one that won uh, the Dragon Award out of those three. So I'm excited. These guys do great work. They get in there and really uh, delve into all the little references and nods I make to uh, like mythology and theology pop culture. So it, it's fun. You know, I'm really glad, honestly, what, what I'm most glad about this show is that all the time I've put into um, thinking over this alternate Iron Man 2 wasn't wasted. We can actually use it to do something interesting and useful. That's a real surprise to me. <laughs> yeah. I'll shout out to uh, Nathan Housley in the, in the chat who is, one of the three fun gentlemen who runs Puppy of the Month Book Club, reminding you to also check out their review of Material, which was a precursor to Soul Dancer. Um, all right, folks. Thanks for turning into this uh, extra long episode of Geek Gab. We do hope you were uh, enthralled by the sheer skills we, your hosts, displayed. We do this show about once a week, um, usually about the same time. And we are... Of course, putting together some great stuff next week. Next week on the show, our guest, our very, very special guest, is the narrator of several audiobooks. Um, and he also is one of the preeminent pulp historians currently involved in the pulp revolution, John Mollison. 
uh, is going to be on the show next week, assuming that things don't go sideways drastically. So I'm really looking forward to that. I can't wait. Um, and we are negotiating times, hopefully for the end of this month, to have uh, a return of Jeffro Razorfist and John C. Wright to come back and discuss uh, Pulp Works again. So we don't have any confirmations yet, but if everything goes to plan, it should be on or about the 29th of this month. That is very, very tentative, though, so please do not quote me on that. Thanks for tuning in, folks. Um, we are found at youtube.com slash geekgab, youtube.com slash geekgab. By the way, if you have subscribed, if you are a subscriber to the show on YouTube, what you additionally need to do below the show, there will be uh, the little gray box and there will be a bell in that gray box. That is the super double secret subscription. If you have been wanting to get emails that announce when a show's coming out, that announce we're throwing up a, a live event, click on that bell, and that tells YouTube that you actually want to receive the emails about when we're going to go on the air. You will not get anything before the shows unless you super double secret subscribe. You will only get notified a few days after, oh, yeah, by the way, they also did this show. Um, a couple of things also coming up. We are looking at, in the vein of today's show, uh, my fellow hosts, Brian, going off and starting his own geek, Gab Gaiden. Uh, Gaiden is a Japanese word meaning side, sto uh, side story for all of you non-weebs in the audience, where uh, Brian would, with various writer friends of his, talk about issues specifically of interest to writers, and that would be in addition to the main show every week uh, at regular or irregular intervals, subject, of course, to Brian's need to actually write. So um, looking very, very excited for Brian to have basically his own show, uh, on Geek Gab here, that would go out, you would get it through the podcast subscription, same as normal, and we would have a special playlist for Brian's uh, Geek Gab Guiden on writing. And also, uh, our fellow host, John Dornall, is uh, planning his own Geek Gab Guiden series on gaming on Dungeons and Dragons, talking about his campaign and also uh, being a good game master, being a good player, anything like that. Again, at irregular intervals, not necessarily once a week. And uh, Rick Stump, who was on the show last week, is tentatively scheduled to come on the first episode of Doranal's Geek Gab Guidance. So uh, we have no dates specifically set for those two shows yet, but they are in... Uh, the planning stages, and uh, and I'm I especially am looking forward to uh, my co-hosts uh, doing uh, having the opportunity to do something that the audience you the audience have been demanding. We've had people asking for more writing centric episodes. We've had people asking for more Dungeons and Dragons or gaming centric episodes, for more tabletop gaming centric episodes. So this is a way where we haven't been able to get back to that on the main show. It's a way for us to answer the needs of the audience and also uh, my hosts get get their chance to do uh, pretty much whatever they want, get a chance to run their own shows. Uh, I'm excited. I think they're excited. Uh, I really, really hope they're excited. Are you excited, Brian? Does that excite you? I'm ecstatic. Okay. So, yeah, look forward. Look, look forward um, to the Stephanie Meyer cast. Uh, we'll, we'll be discussing all Twilight all the time. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. We'll, 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 we'll make it interesting for you. Um. So, anyways, uh, you can get us online at youtube.com slash geekgab and if you super double secret subscribe you'll get email notices for every time we schedule the show it will tell you oh by the way geekgab's going live in an hour uh and so that's the best way to subscribe or you can go to itunes just do a search for geekgab you can subscribe to the podcast that goes out generally in the evening after these shows and you'll be able to download them directly through itunes to your iphone or ipad or whatever we are also available Lest you Android aficionados be offended, we are also available through the Google Play Store. Um, download the Google Play app, do a search for GeekGab, and you can subscribe right there. And for those of you who are open source 
advocates who do not wish to tie yourselves to the corporate monolith of Google or the corporate monolith of Apple. We're also available on the web at soundcloud.com or you can download a SoundCloud app to whatever phone you happen to use. Again, just do a search for Geek Gab in any of those places will be there. I thank everyone in the chat. Chat's still going right now, by the way. Uh, thank everyone who tuned in live to the show. I thank everyone uh, who has subscribed and spread the word about Geek Gab. We're really excited about the upcoming stuff. We really hope it is uh, something that you, the audience, can latch onto and have fun listening to. Thanks for tuning in today, folks. We, your hosts, are signing out. We are leaving, but don't worry. Don't you fret. We. We'll be back.